1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I
2: mean, what drew you to Hanson? Because like I said, I wasn't familiar with him before, before you, you mentioned him.
3: Uh, it's got to be a decade now or so ago. I went through some crazy nerve issues myself. I had like a Bell's palsy style attack. It was my neurologist couldn't really figure out what yeah. was going on with me. Uh, so I now have a tremor since that episode. So I, am looking for different artists, different Ted talks, that analytical side. And I stumble across somebody who I can relate to physically as well as intellectually. And so I think that was kind of my first, uh, leeway into his work and that ephemeral quality that he produces.
2: Okay. So, so you've had a similar physical experience and uh, man, that, that, I got to find a way to work that in. <laughs> so that's, that's like, that, that's perfect right there. Cause when I was looking at him, I, I was going to do some like, you know, really just mindless like oh he he had to drop out, out of art school and like all my teachers told me I should drop out of art school <laughs> <But> for, <laughs> i was terrible for different reasons i was just naturally bad at it I feel like who art ed we'll tried to splice who art we'll is mr wood art <laughs> ed me yeah. either way it <laughs> it worked so many I, I know that's thought to great start Welcome to Who Arted, the podcast where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today is Kelly Beach, the host of Ramblings of a Middle School Art Teacher, a podcast I've been listening to quite a bit lately. You are, of course, a middle school art teacher out in Colorado and on the board of uh, the Colorado Tab
3: Incorporated, right? That Yeah, that's correct, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited yeah. to be here.
2: Thank you for joining me. It's always lovely to, to you know, sort of meet another art teacher. I, you know, I was listening to your, your episode today about conferences and finding your own people and, you know, that connection and how that, that sort of rejuvenates us. You know, I'm going to be speaking at the Illinois Art Ed Association conference um, in just a few days coming up. And, you know, it's nice to meet a fellow TAB guy.
3: Yeah, um, I love TAB. I love talking with other art teachers. This is typically the time we have our Colorado conference. Yeah. Facebook memories were showing that that's what should be happening right now. But here we are and I, this is going to work. This is going to be it's, great. Yeah, it's
2: a little bit different, but virtual can we can still learn and build that community and learn from each other. Um, so that, that's fantastic. Now. Today, we're going to be talking about an artist that you actually brought to me, Phil Hansen. I, I'm going to be honest. I was not familiar with him or his work before you you had mentioned him. And reading about him, pretty cool stuff. Um, he's a contemporary artist, an American artist. I believe he's from Minnesota. Um, but he he had a, a, a background in art that is not necessarily our traditional, traditional style. Uh, he... He loved traditional arts, pointillism specifically. And he, when he was going to art school, he was so focused on pointillism. He said he started to develop this tremor. And what happened was, as he was trying to to maintain that control to stop that tremor and stop that, that shaking to get the perfect dots that were his goal, um, you know, he tightened his grip the tremor got worse and then he tightened it further. The tremor got worse. It's this vicious cycle where, you know, he sort of talks about that sort of tunnel vision and relentless pursuit of perfection in that pointillist approach. It was ultimately damaging to to him, um, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, all of that. um, Because that tremor developed to the point where it stopped him from from pursuing his arts for a while. He left art school. He left the arts entirely. And eventually, years later, when he, he went back to the arts and he saw a neurologist and was trying to figure out a way to fix and overcome that hurdle, the neurologist said, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you've got permanent nerve damage here. This is not coming back. That tremor, the shake's not going away. And he said for him, the sort of aha moment was the neurologist saying, why don't you just embrace the shake? Which I think is a really interesting idea, you know, Um, as as artists, we we embrace so many different things.
3: Right. And we look at 2020, what kind of shake have we encouraged (laughs) or encountered this year? March, I was ripped out of my classroom and say, here, teach from home and... Yeah, that that's continuing this year too. And that's a pretty big shake when it comes to art making. So I think that's kind of been my trend and philosophy this year for my own art making and my teaching.
2: A- absolutely. I, I know for myself, you know, it's one of those things as artists, um, you know, stepping aside from, from Phil Hansen, but like getting a little bit meta on here as, as the, the teachers getting into our nerdy pedagogical stance, like you know, as artists, we are so much focused on control and trying to create something and execute our vision. And, you know, as a teacher, I, I'm, I don't know if you started off in the tab philosophy. I, I'm, I'm sort of a tab guy. I'm not strictly an anything guy. You know, I'm kind of an anything goes kind of guy more than more than any rigid philosophy. But for me, I came to tab just in the last couple of years, which is sort of a choice based way of running your your classroom. And for me, it was really scary when I first came to the realization that embracing this philosophy means that I'm going to have 30 different projects happening in my classroom simultaneously every hour of every day. And what I found was it was it was the worst of all worlds when I tried to do that, like in a limited scope, giving kids choice and giving up that freedom. But when I embraced it and just dove into it fully, um, it was very liberating and it made it much more interesting when students were choosing their their own path. Um, you know, I I lost a certain amount of control over what was happening in the classroom. But, you know, we shared the control with the students and the students responded wonderfully.
3: Yeah, yeah. when I was teaching uh, and I discovered TAB, it, I was at a core knowledge school. And I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with the core knowledge structure, but it is very... Art history based things are supposed to align with their social studies class. There's a specific yeah. art. Style. a lot of
2: cross-curricular. yeah you know. that
3: you're supposed to meet at each grade level. It was very structured. and it really didn't fit me and how I needed to how I felt I needed to teach. Kids were rushing through projects. they weren't really excited about the work uh you know, a bunch of dead white guys weren't yeah. always the most interesting to my community and to yeah. me itself. And so when I discovered Tab or a choice based philosophy, my world just lit on fire. I was super excited to really dive into what are the interests of my students. And it was a crazy shake if we're gonna stay with that Bill yeah. Hansen. It's a good metaphor. Metaphor, absolutely I shook my school's community. I said, hey, I can still meet all of these requirements that we need to, um, but we're not going to be doing projects based on uh, pointillism or any of the art history media that I was supposed to cover. We'll still cover it, but it's going to be more of a quick lecture or, hey, I noticed you're working in an impressionist style. Look at this artist who does this work.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't give up those things. We just, we do it in a different way. Um, and, and it's all about being culturally responsive and valuing what our different students bring to the classroom, their experiences and their interests and finding a way to broaden their horizons without sort of forcing them to fit into a certain mold. Um, but Back to like our Phil Hansen and embracing the shake. You know, that's kind of a lesson that obviously you and I can relate to in our, our teaching practices. But what he was talking about was that, that frustration and that aha moment when the neurologist said that shake's not going away. So you need to embrace that. He said he began making he referred to them as scribble pictures. Now looking at them, they don't look like scribbles to me. You know, what what I noticed is he was still he was still maintaining that that connection to pointillism. that that he loved. Um, And he talks about it as fragmenting the art, which I think is really interesting because that's in line with the way Surratt described it. Surratt didn't refer to himself as a pointillist. He talked about divisionism and that idea of like dividing it into these discrete bits. And what Hansen was doing at that point was he referred to them as scribbles, but because it was like wavy, irregular lines instead of the neat and precise dots, but he was still using the layering of those marks, just a different type of a mark to form a larger representational image. So it's these shaky wavy lines that all come together for a strong representational image. And then he started to begin experimenting with other media. He started working large scale using his feet as stamps. He he used a blowtorch on wood to burn the images into the designs. He just wanted to get away from that really rigid structure and embrace a little bit of chance, a little bit of irregularity, you know, the unconventional media. Um, because he was no longer able to succeed and thrive in the rigid confines of pointillism that he he loved and he aspired to early on, but he still loved making art and he still felt compelled to do that, and so he found a way to transcend those limitations, which I you know absolutely always love to see that happening, um, and so then he talked about getting out of school and this is another instance where where he he had another sort of block another obstacle that came up in his in his narrative when he tells it he talks about how he was so excited when he got his first real job and he could afford to support his arts his art habit and he could get all the best materials that he always wanted um and I I remember, you know, when I was in school, I did not always have the best materials to work with, you know. Um and and I remember a teacher told me um one of the, one of the best bits of wisdom she laid down. She said, "The materials don't make the art you do." You know. And I, I think he kind of came to that realization because he said he felt this block because he was looking at all these materials that he bought for himself he was trying to figure out what to make. And, you know, I know I've had that experience of you're looking at that blank canvas and it's like, what do I make generating that idea? That's the hardest part, you know? Um, That's the part a lot of students struggle with in in the classroom when you have very open-ended, open-ended structures where it's like you can make anything you want. Okay. Now what's, what's a valid idea?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Ideation and, coming up with ideas or basing things off of the process itself are super huge for our students. You know, we can't just give them open, complete open endedness and expect them to be successful. We've got to teach them guidelines. I usually introduce the studio habits of mind. There's eight of those. I talk about the artistic thinking process. Where do ideas come from? We build creative bank accounts We're trying to get as much information in their head that they can pull from so that when those creative restraints are lifted, they're not just stuck there floundering.
2: Yeah. And and what I like is that Hanson is open about that, because for a lot of us, that's that's an uncomfortable space to be in to not know what to do and to, to feel like you have all the resource, all the resources. So now there's no excuse not to be making great stuff, you know? And what he did was, you know, he sort of realized the, the paradox of choice and how boundaries and limitations can actually be helpful in the creative process. So he started setting somewhat arbitrary boundaries for himself. Like he started to say like, okay, what can I make with just a dollar, you know? And so he, he got a bunch of Starbucks cups for free. He just asked them, like, I know you'll give me a cup. Will you give me 50? And then, you know, he starts making drawing across that instead of the, you know, archival acid-free, like, you know, <laughs> heavyweight watercolor paper or something like that. Um, and his breakthrough piece was a stop motion that he painted on his chest different images of, like, all the works that were important influences over him. Um, and then I liked how in that, you know, he's he's quite literally building these different layers of influences on himself and then sort of peeling it away, which I, I always think like, you know, metaphorically, it's just so wonderful to show like, okay, I'm breaking away from those constraints of the painting and the painters that, that I've loved in the past and still appreciate, but I got to do my own thing, you know? Um, I, I, I just thought that was an interesting piece, but he's done a number of things. And one of, one of the things he did recently was his, his art good or his goodbye art series. And he refers to that as like focusing on the ultimate limitation of creating artwork that will be destroyed, which is painful for me as an artist to look at, you know, um,
3: As I've gotten older and as I think about my artistic process and I relate to my students and their artistic process, I've really shifted into that process over product kind of overall viewpoint where I see the process of the art making, which is so much of what Phil's work is about, is the process outweighs the product. Yes, if you're going to be a practicing artist and you're working on commissions or you're working for a major company that product is super important. But I think the majority of the students that come through my classroom, I want them to really experience that process more so than that end product. If I can get them engaged and excited about their art making, the product will come eventually, but I think that process is super important.
2: Yeah, I for me I'm I'm all I'm I don't like weighting things one over another because I, I, my, you know, when I talk to people, it's like, are you process guy? Are you product guy? I, my answer is always just yes. Like for me, like they're, they're, like I don't, I don't sacrifice one for the other. I, I love them both. I, I want, I just want more of everything always. But what I, what I like about his orientation, like he's very clear about his philosophy and his orientation. And he, you know, to to be able to sacrifice and destroy his work as a a part of the creative process, I think is interesting. There's there's sort of like a Zen kind of feel to that. Like it kind of reminds me of the like the 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 Buddhist uh, monks making the the sand art and everything. You know what I'm talking about? Like the the mandalas and everything that, the real that temporary. are
3: temporary. They're
2: they're ephemeral. They're yeah. temporary, and it's you know. It's about not getting overly attached to the objects and trappings of the physical space. And, and, you know, for an artist, that's a bold statement. Because, like I say, the visual arts, it's, it's so much about the, that aesthetic experience. Um,
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton. The voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to A Beautiful Soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.
2: And so I think, I think it's probably good now to shift towards looking at a specific work of his, and this is from his Goodbye Art 2 series. Um, It's called Cobain, which, you know, I was immediately drawn to just because, you know, growing up in in the 90s playing guitar, I I loved Nirvana. I loved Kurt Cobain. I, I loved that. And I find it interesting because when I think of Cobain, you know, the grunge aesthetic was so much about creation and destruction being intertwined. Yeah. You know what I mean?
3: Absolutely. Well, and so, then if we're relating the ephemeral, the timelessness, you know, things can disappear so quickly, that really ties into the Corbane story and it just it really kind of hits home.
2: Yeah. So w- as I'm looking at this this video piece, because, you know, the physical work does not stand up over time. Um, as i'm I'm looking at it, you know, the first the first shot is him smashing a guitar, which okay, we've seen musicians smash guitars. Cobain was famously smashing his guitars on stage. And then we see Hansen carefully and meticulously arrange all of those pieces on a piece of glass and, and we see it it's revealed. Oh, it is this stunning portrait of Kurt Cobain. And what does he do next?
3: Smashes it again.
2: he, He smashes it again. And so it, it's this cycle of destruction, then creation, then destruction. Um, Which, you know, Kurt Cobain was always smashing his guitars and then the roadies would have to pick up the pieces and bolt the neck back on and, you know, he'd go out and play a show the next day. Um, But, you know, he's capturing this and it's interesting to me because, like I say, there is that sort of zen, like... And existentialist kind of be in the moment, create for the sake of creating, and you don't have to hold on to that physical product. Um, you know, embrace the shake, embrace the chaos. And I, I, I see that, and I, I find that interesting. Um, I, like, what's what's your take on this? What are you, what's jumping out to you about that piece? Uh,
3: that piece is again that the power of the process, that time. That energy that he took to create something that is then just immediately destroyed once again. And I think it really just helps my students see that things don't necessarily need to be perfect. Don't get me wrong, his work is phenomenal. It it has a very polished quality to it. The you can tell that that's Cobain before it's smashed again. But the whole idea of we can create something and then live in that moment and then destroy it and move on to our next thing is super powerful to me. And I think my students can relate to that as well
2: yeah I mean, it's it's an interesting theme. And what I like about this as a performance piece, because that's kind of the category that's how I categorize this current series. It, to me, it feels like it's performance art. You know, he talks about he's destroying his artwork um, and that there's no physical product. but but to me, it's like the video, the documentation of that process to me that's the ultimate artwork to me that's the ultimate piece of this and what i find really interesting is the way that the everything about the performance is thematically tied you know he starts off with a stratocaster that he smashes you know cobain was playing fenders all the time i, I yeah if we if we want to quibble it's not a it's not a jag staying it's not you know like the exact thing that cobain was doing but you know, he smashes a guitar, which is, you know, one of the the acts that was so closely associated with Kurt Cobain and his performance. And then he reassembles those pieces to an image of Kurt Cobain and then he destroys it, which, again, I, I appreciate it on, on different levels. I like the energy. I wish there were. I wish there were a little bit more like light and sound with it, because he's doing this in like a blank white room, which. Which at the same time feels like this sort of irreverent send up to the gallery world where it's like, okay, blank, white, pristine. I'm going to violate the sanctity of that space um, and and sort of break a taboo and do something that's unexpected in that setting. Kind of the way like like, you know, for a while there was that trend of like punk guys wearing the ties and like, you know, subverting those different aesthetics.
3: Yeah, I totally see where you're going with that. Music is not just an auditory experience, especially when you're in a concert. You're feeling that sound pound against your chest. You're feeling the energy of the people around you. You're moving to the music. It's so um, all-inclusive, full-body experience, and I think some of that is lacking in this piece. It is void of a whole lot of visual other than the assembly of the thing. There's not a whole lot of sound except for the smashing of the guitar. I think yeah. you're losing some of that music, that energy that comes from experiencing a, a rock concert that could have yeah. maybe been translated a little more.
2: Yeah, and, and like I say, I'm I'm a little bit conflicted on it because on the one hand, that's what I want and that's what I expect. On the other hand, I always like things that as a work of art i see enough to un- to connect to and understand but it has some elements that are unexpected that are different that that subvert my expectations and like i say i see the this as in in some ways sort of you know the the blank white stark white blankness of it like it kind of to me echoes the the artificial environment of the gallery and kind of calls that out in, in some indirect way, um, which I find kind of interesting. And I'm wrapping it up. I a, just a three point rating scale. And four. where should this hang? The loo? the loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loo? British for the Yeah. There's a the poop loo? joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible.
3: I've been debating this. You know, I've listened to your podcast. I knew this question was coming. You have these three awesome categories of where things belong, but I don't know if this belongs anywhere. I think this is such an in-the-moment piece of work. It's that process. You're left with just that clear glass box of the broken guitar pieces and a separate video. I'm almost wondering if it doesn't belong anywhere. It just belongs in the moment as opposed to one of your three categories. I'm going to shake it up on you a little bit.
2: I like that. I like that. I like that you, uh, you refuse to fit within the confines of the structure of my program. Um, I, I also was actually conflicted about this because on the one hand, I feel like Hansen himself as an artist... I think he is an artist for the lab. There is so much to learn from. I mean, you and I, we both knew going into this, we were gonna be talking about his his biography, his background, his work, and we could not help ourselves from making connections to teaching and understanding art and the art making process and the creative process because his, his story and the artwork he creates, his body of work, is very compelling along those lines and has a lot to, to teach about the creative process. But this specific piece, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say I'd put it in the loo because of the fact that, you know, the loo, I feel like is, you know, I, I could explain this, you know, in different ways, <laughs> but what would what I would say is, it's for something that doesn't need to be kept around forever
3: right <laughs> you know what
2: i mean like this is an ephemeral piece and his performance performance art in general is ephemeral and that's part of that's part of the selection of that medium is for for it to be in the moment you know absolutely um,
3: if i had to put it in one of the three categories you know i'm yeah. going to i'm going to bow down to your structure i'm going to give in I'm gonna lose Don't that give I'm gonna lose that punk Do rock your own thing. punk rock section. But I, I completely agree that it is so ephemeral and the lube would be the better of the three.
2: Because it's because it's also the most irreverent of the categories right you know <laughs> So I want to say thank you very much for taking the time. It was wonderful to meet you in person It, it feels funny because like you know I, I first met you on social media and I started listening to your podcast you know in in the car on the way to school and it, it's um, it's interesting because like I feel like I knew you before and it, it's nice to to meet you i I should put meat in quotes because on on Zoom, but it it's it's nice to to meet another like-minded teacher.
3: yeah, I agree. It's been a pleasure listening to this podcast. I especially loved the Lego episode. Legos were my oh, were my thing as a kid. It was kind of my intro into art, and so I really related to that one, but I really appreciate being on here.
2: Oh well, thank you so much.